This episode is brought to you by Glorious Introductions. Do you know the difference between you and truly popular, powerful celebrities? They don't need to wear a name tag. People already know their names. Well, we can't all be YouTube sensations or infamous serial killers. And Google goggles notwithstanding, no one's invented earpiece trackers that let us ID everyone we see. Yet. In the meantime, why not use the solution that's been the first choice of fancy pants European aristocrats for centuries? Next time you go to your high school reunion or that business meet and greet, contact Glorious Introductions to provide a diminutive herald in a colorful uniform to walk ahead of you and shout, Lester Gilderson of Discount Tire Company. It's the classy, totally unpretentious way to help people remember your name and want to be your friend. Glorious Introductions is the first choice for openings, prefactories, launches, overtures, preambles, prologues, primers, and prolegomena. Don't forget to use the promo code RERED to try out their latest product, Epilogues. It's very similar to Introductions, but happens when you leave. You can figure it out. And thank you, Glorious Introductions, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Welcome to the Rereading Wolf podcast, a spoiler-filled chapter-by-chapter reread of Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun. Today is our first bonus author interview episode in a few months, and I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Ada Palmer as much as James and I did. We are talking today with Ada Palmer, who is the Hugo-nominated author of the Terra Ignota series, which everyone should read. Fourth volume is coming out pretty soon. I assume that most people listening to this probably know who she is already. We, we have a very small but intense group of listeners, audience. But Terra Ignota is a vast, sprawling future history of four books, Mm-hmm. That, she says, has been directly influenced by Jean Wolfe. So that's the the first big thing. Uh, the other thing is that uh, she was asked to write the new preface for the new Tor Essentials version of Shadow and Claw. Yes. And of the forthcoming Sword and Citadel as well. So there's a pair of them. Excellent. That was going to be one of my questions. Yeah. But we just wanted to talk to her since she's obviously a bit of a wolf <laughs> fan, I think. Yes. Cutting in real quick just to say that you actually can read that introduction online. If you go to Amazon and look at the Kindle preview of the new Tor Essentials version, it's available on the Look Inside preview. Still, I know most of you folk are going to go buy it anyway, just like I did. So I guess the first question we can ask is, how did you get to write that preface? So I was asked by my editor, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, who's overseeing the Tor Essentials set, and who has been working very hard to, to choose wisely in terms of having interesting prefaces. So he's had a number that were done by Joe Walton. I, I really think that the prefaces of the Tor Essentials collection is a, a really cool body of literature in itself. And I hope someday, decades from now, there will be a, an a edited volume collection of the prefaces. <laughs> uh, because he's really thinking very carefully about who to ask. And he asked me to do that one partly because he knew I had thought about the series very intensely as a big influence on my own. But then in the other side, because I'm a scholar and a historian, and he knew that in my historian hat, I would be able to talk about some of the things that Wolf does in terms of literature and history and language uh, in ways that I don't want to say are technical, but in ways that are 
uh, enabled by my uh, academic training. So mm -hmm. it was that that combo. Yeah, I got to say that your introduction is probably one of my favorite introductions on their own. I, I would read this as just an, an article on mm. the book of the new sun. I really, I really, 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 you, well, I, love, I just said you get it. You get it. Yeah. Well, I love the essay as a form and, uh, which is also why I blog and you'll see, I use interesting structures sometimes in my blog posts, but, uh, writing an introduction is a very tricky essay because you're talking about a thing to someone who is about to read that thing. And so you don't want to discuss anything that's going to, uh, spoiler is a clumsy word. You don't want to discuss anything that's going to upset the progress of revelation that is important to the text, mm -hmm. right? There, are, there can be texts where, you know, it's fine to know in advance that this book has a vampire. And there can be another book where you, you really need to not know in advance that this book <laughs> has a vampire because the vampire is going to be revealed in an important way, right? And when right. you're talking about those two books, it's not a question of one being a spoiler and the other not. It's a question of uh, sometimes the process of the revelation of a thing is very important and a whole sequence of structures that are there around it get disrupted if the reader knows it in advance, other times it's fine or can even enhance a work to know a particular thing in advance. Um, and, and when you're writing an introduction, you want to think very carefully about what are the things that if I mention them now, make the reading process richer? Mm -hmm. What are the things that I have to avoid mentioning because knowing them in advance will make the reading experience less rich? And it's a, a very challenging way of thinking about the story that requires you to really remember the process of reading it for the first time and what you knew and what you didn't and what could help and what could not, so that you can uh, be careful about what you do and don't uh, disrupt in terms of the order of revelation. That's very much more thoughtful <laughs> than I think. Uh, no, I mean, I'm serious. I think that's like incredibly more thoughtful than what often happens with with books like that where it seems like sometimes you'll get very just sort of vague hand waving about what's coming on but i but right well or you'll get the opposite and you'll get something that spoils you know yeah, everything and you know, i remember a friend who who received a draft of the back cover blurb uh, from an editor and then wrote back to the editor and said, you realize that this spoils the entire book up through literally the last paragraph, right? <laughs> and, and the editor was like, oh, I didn't think about that. Okay, here's a here's a <laughs> you know, eight-word modification of the blurb that now it doesn't. <laughs> well, and another way to think about it is you only, you know, for a great book, you're going to read it more than once. Mm -hmm. uh, but you only get the experience of the first time you read it once. And if there are moments where I have a vivid memory of, you know, I turned the page and I read that and it was just magical. And the moment of that reveal was just, wow. You don't want to take that experience away from the first time reader mm -hmm. uh, with your introduction. But if there are other things where you realize, oh, there's this subtle thing and you catch it easily on second read, but you often miss it on first read. But if you did catch it on first read, it would actually be an enriching experience. Right. You know, that's the sort of thing where mentioning it uh, is fine. And so I thought very carefully about which elements of Wolf's world build 
to do that with. So for example, you know, when you plunge in, if you haven't read the blurb or any summaries, you don't at first know that this is the far future, mm-hmm. right? It, right? There are those moments of you realizing it. One of the big ones being when he describes the tower and you realize gradually that it's made of metal and full of advanced technologies that he doesn't understand. And uh, another being the moment toward the beginning, and here I'm assuming that, you know, Wolf Reader is listening to this, the moment when we see the painting and we realize that it's the moon landing, but the narrator and the uh, art keeper don't. And so, for example, if I, in the preface, mention this is set in the far future, that enables me to discuss a whole lot more things. And just knowing that, it does take away the moment of you first realizing it's the far future, but that moment comes maybe six pages in and mm. is sort of amorphous and comes gradually. And having that fact in advance to me doesn't weaken the experience very much at all. Yeah. However, if I s- describe that moment with that painting and say that it's the moon landing, I've totally taken away the wonder of that moment of when you realize it. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 So I'm, so I was careful in the introduction of you know, when I want a concrete example, I'll make sure it's a really minor concrete example. I'll make sure it's a tiny detail that was in in uh, passing almost, as opposed to one of the moments that you remember as you look back on it as a major moment in the reading of the text. And when it's things about the world, I'll talk about the ones that are revealed quite early, such as the fact that he uh, is in the far future, the fact that Earth has all these layers Um, And the fact that he tells you quite early on that he will end up on the throne. That's another moment where I thought hard about how to how directly to talk about that. And I talk about it sort of semi orthogonally so that I don't quite directly say it uh, because it's an amazing moment. That moment when he says that he ended up on the throne and there's been no hint of anything that could lead in that direction yet. Mm -hmm. And you're like, what? Uh, Yeah, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to disrupt that too much. So for example, my discussion of that aspect of it is limited to the introduction to the second two books, uh, where my reader presumably has read the first two. Yeah. Uh, uh, So yeah, just a lot of thinking about, you know, what kind of detail do you include or exclude so that you're giving an enriching background without taking away any of those delight moments of the first read. Yeah. That's wonderful. So, so speaking of like choosing what to talk about, I love that the, I'm just going to read the first sentence of it just because I think <laughs> it's a cool sentence anyway, but the first sentence of it goes clutter here synonymous with history was long absent from our imagined worlds of tomorrow. I just love the idea that new sun starts with, the word clutter, like an introduction <laughs> to that. And then you tie that to history. And I didn't say before, but you are an associate professor of history at University of Chicago. So yes, first of all, it makes sense. But <laughs> why start with history with New Sun when so many people might have more religious feelings about it, or they might have more interest in, in Severian as an unreliable narrator or something? But, right. but why history? Well, so, so as you'll note, I discussed the religiosity in the second one largely because uh, the religiosity doesn't come to the fore as much in the first half of the Mm -hmm. series. Uh, Whereas one of the very first things you get is you're dived into this 
tower, which has torture equipment from a dozen centuries scattered about at all these different tech levels. And you have witches and cloaks and spaceship engines and laser guns and all this detritus. And one of our very first experiences is Severian going to the librarian and seeing those stacks on stacks of books that go on and on so far that rats not only live among them, but have evolved a language. Mm. <laughs> and so sitting down to think, what is the aspect of this, given that I know I want to talk about religiosity and I know I want to talk about Severian as an unreliable narrator, which of the topics I want to talk about is the one that Wolf makes you experience first, which is the one that would make my introduction parallel the structure he himself chose because you sure dive deep into this as a world of layers of history before you've gotten to know Severian very much and realize just how complex a narrator he is. Um, and while his religious language is there from the very beginning, uh, it doesn't intensify to ha helping you realize that it's a center of the text until the second half. Uh, and so in a way, I wanted that introduction to feel like an introduction to the beginning of the Book of the New Sun and not to the whole Book of the New Sun, which would be the second essay, which I already knew I was doing. Um, mm, and then, you know, it's easy for us to miss because we live in a world that's been being influenced by Wolf for so long. But clutter is rare <laughs> or mm. was in, in many veins of science fiction and history remains rare in many veins of science fiction. One of the things that is astonishing in Wolf and that I copied and uh, that people find striking in mine is the continuation into the future of things that are lying around from the past. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, you know, Terra Ignota, there's still a king of Spain, even though it's the 25th century. <laughs> and in Book of the New Sun, they're still having the ceremony of St. Catherine uh, of Alexandria, even though they've forgotten what Christianity is. Right. You know, and that's a, a more extreme version of the same thing. But to me, I think that that's the aspect of the world that's striking first uh, and that was most different from what the rest of science fiction was doing when he wrote it. Because the other form of science fiction that often has clutter is cyberpunk. Mm -hmm. uh, cyberpunk and also sort of layered post-apocalyptic recovery stuff, which wasn't around as much in 1981. Uh, as they have come to be since, uh, so that the strikingness of the presence of history and the strikingness of the layers of clutter in Book of the New Sun would have been more striking right when it came out than it is for us today. Mm, interesting. Uh, now, as someone who in my courses often teaches extremely influential books, I'll teach Moore's Utopia, I'll teach Plato's Republic, I'll teach, you know, John Locke's uh, political thought, it's very frequently the hardest thing to teach is the aspects of this important work that have spread and that now everybody does, mm -hmm. uh, or many people do, because they don't feel new, because you've already met them, and then you read it, and you're like, oh, this is another example of blah. And until someone says, no, 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 this is the first example of blah, this yeah. is the source yeah. of blah, this is the moment of the birth of blah. 
until you point that out, it can be very hard for people to realize it. You know, so for example, when I teach John Locke, I often have the experience of students coming in saying, he's not saying anything. And I say, <laughs> so he's talking about rights and people having rights. And he's talking about, <laughs> you know, balance of power in government. And he's talking about all of these things that you have had memorized since you were five, uh, but they're new. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't see it. Uh, or when teaching Freud, and I know I will circle back to Wolf in a moment because this <laughs> is about the same, you know, when teaching Freud, when you give somebody Freud to read, they come away with, wow, the Oedipus complex and weird sex stuff is really weird. I've weirded out. Freud is like creepy. I don't like him. And you say, you know, yes, but <laughs> remember that the new part is him arguing that there is unconscious human thought at all that the human being is not a rational machine yeah. yeah that we have subconscious drives that do things for reasons we don't understand you believe that right uh yeah but everybody knows that and then <laughs> yes everybody knows that now but we believe that because it was new then and so that's one of the things i wanted to help bring to light in the introduction is to help people see how much of the groundbreaking stuff can be less visible because it's broken that ground and others are now planting in that garden. And, you know, the thing about clutter is, mm -hmm. it, you, you know, you bring up one point in that the, the, the past is always still with us. But also, you know, it's such a staple of classic sci-fi to have these uncomplicated jungle planets, ice planets, ocean planets, desert planets. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like theme parks. Yes. And they've always been that way, always will be, right? And we visit them in our our spaceships, which have beautiful, clean surfaces mm -hmm. and and no stuff. Right, and even in even in Lord of the Rings, uh, with Tolkien, with his ten thousand years of cultural and geological history, they're they're all basically unchanged from time to time, location to location. You, only the characters yeah. are moved yeah. on and off the sets, and and Wolf just blew all that away. Yeah, and for Tolkien he's looking at change and stability and some of the things he has have been stable for a very long time. He's commenting on that. And what this is the moment of change this is the moment when the elves are leaving and when we're transitioning from one era to another. Yeah. So that Tolkien introduces that stability with intentionality and does analysis of it. But then so many works that are written influenced by Tolkien take the, okay, it's normal to write in a world where there's been no change for hundreds of years, mm -hmm. and then do so without there being an intentionality of, and examining this is what the book is partly about, the way Tolkien employed. So the, the, the fact that Tolkien chose to explore stability and change ended up with a lot of things being written in spaces of stability uh, without the deep analysis that mm -hmm. Tolkien intended. Um, are you done talking about clutter, Craig? <laughs> I'm gonna try and, and not go and not read this yeah. whole thing. Clutter, clutter, for, clutter forever. But, no, the only thing I, I just have to mention because it is probably one of my absolute favorite set pieces in the book is when Varian's climbing on the cliff and describes the different literal layers of history. Yeah, as he's going up and down, and that's I think first time I read it, that was when all of this book hit me. Right. Like, yeah, I think that's one of the big points that it becomes really, really clear. That and also encountering the mountains and realizing that he's never thought of there being a mountain that isn't carved into a mm -hmm. portrait of a king. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, which is, again, a slow thing to, to realize. That's one that I often use as my example when I'm trying to describe it to people, this future. 
because there's so many other cool things happening at that point when he's exploring the mountains and mm. they're all portraits of kings, that if I spoil there are no mountains that aren't portraits of kings, it doesn't weaken the experience of reading that section of the book because so many other amazing discoveries are happening at the same time. <laughs> you mentioned the level of trust that Wolf mm -hmm. had in readers to be able to abandon the skills and expectations they've developed yeah. and to learn new ones. Yeah, and the level of trust that he expects us to have in him as well. Yes, yes. The long, delayed satisfaction. Well, yeah, I mean, and it's even, I think, goes to another uh, level. You, Wolf, of course, has to trust the reader. And the reader, as you mentioned, has to trust Wolf that he's going to pull this off. And then I think about the editors that were first yeah. publishing Wolf <laughs> and the level of trust they had that, as Damon Knight said for The Changeling, you know, I don't know what this story is about, but I think it means something. <laughs> and they had published it. Yeah. And, and I think in some ways that is something that some series that are complexly planned as a series ask of their editors. Because sometimes series are episodic, or it's clear where they go, and they have a lot of a lot of payoff in book one, and you have a very good sense from book one of what the series is. But there are others like Terra Ignota, like Book of the New Sun, like in fact uh, Lord of the Rings, where the structure of what's actually happening is partly there at the beginning, but you sure have to wait a long time to really see the scale of what's going on. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you, you say, can I can I read something that you said here? That's really good. Yeah. As one must learn to swim before one swims, so the first attempt is all laborious splashing before the second can be fun. In many ways, one reads the book of the new sun only on a second pass. Yeah, that's a yeah, and that I mean that's something that's pretty much the motto of this particular <laughs> yes. podcast. And also, it's something I got from John Clute. Um, mm, yeah. There's so, so much, so, so much that you can't understand on the first pass, that you mm. just can't, uh, that is fully opaque on the first pass, but that on the second pass, when you understand what Severian is, when you understand who he will be, when you understand the metaphysics of the universe, when you understand that there are aliens, you know, so many things are only detectable on second pass. And, you know, all books, all books generally have some of that, right? Let's think of a a Sherlock Holmes story or a cozy mystery, right? On second pass, there will be the clues you missed the first read mm -hmm. and you're designed to miss on the first read. Or there'll be the way in which the person who turns out to have done it was slightly rude at one point. And, and, mm -hmm. and that's the author setting you up to feel satisfied when that person is the person who did it and has to go down. There are always elements of a book that are clear on second pass. But the question is, what percentage of the material is it? Is it 2%? Is it 10%? Is it mm -hmm. greater than 50%? And I think one of the truly ambitious and rare things about Book of the New Sun is that I would say that more than half of the material is not comprehensible on first pass. And so he has not only the faith that his readers will read this, but that they will read it again. Well, I, yeah, I mean, or even even on later passes, we had yeah. a huge debate when we got to the to Morwenna's execution and call the conciliator mm -hmm. about is she guilty? Is she not guilty? Who killed this person? Um, you and know. it's amazing how many people still disagree. Yeah, yeah. After having read it many times. Yeah. yeah. Well, and at that point, 
you know, you don't yet have the providentialist infrastructure of the second half and Severian's revelation that suffering in, exists in the universe strategically and uh, he has to be a torturer to understand this well enough to be the avatar of providence. And thus, in a sense, it doesn't matter whether or not she's guilty the execution is supposed to happen in reflection of her other crimes and nature and experience in a in a way that is part of the plan of the universe which has suffering in it for a reason uh, but you don't have that infrastructure from which to approach it morally mm-hmm. when you read her execution you have to come around to read it a second time thinking of it in terms of this is a cosmos whose uh, creator and avatar thinks this way about suffering uh, to realize that one of the reasons that it's so unclear. And in fact, one of the reasons that there are many deaths in this whose justice is ambiguous is to get us thinking about the question of, well, for the universe to be just, all deaths need to be just how do we feel about that? Are we capable of accepting that as a thesis? Probably not, but we are capable of watching Severian make his moral progress toward accepting that as a thesis. Yeah. Okay. So one of my favorite parts about your introduction is the part about unreliable narrators. This is like a, this is a terrific literary lesson that I think a lot of readers (laughs) you know, don't get. A lot of people, when they think of an unreliable narrator, they think of someone who is is sinister or who mm-hmm. is lying to us or who is strategically feeding us information. Right. But, and sometimes it's it can even just be somebody who is uh, sort of condescendingly trollish and, and pranking us and feeling mm-hmm. smug about feeling smarter than us. I noticed this problem when I would try to describe to people Diderot's uh, Jacques the Fatalist, which is also one of the influences on Terra Ignota alongside Gene Wolfe, and also has a very complex relationship with the narrator. And I would describe the narrator does these complex things. He interrupts himself. He uh, he he has this, you know, the, the simplest example is a moment when the two characters go to bed and he says, well, they've gone to bed. While we wait for them to wake up, I guess I'll have to tell you another story. And he starts telling you a completely different story. <laughs> and, and you're like, Deirdre, they're your characters. They'll wake up at any moment. And he tells you only the beginning of the story. He says, actually, I'm tired. I'm going to get in the bed with them and, and go to bed. And then, and then it's the next chapter. They get up. And, and it's, it's very odd and very funny. But people kept, when I tried to describe it, thinking that that meant it would be sort of jerk jerky and trolly and cold, um, uh, which I think is is indeed the first thing that comes to many people's minds when they think unreliable narrator. But as Severian shows us, and as I work hard to do with not only Mycroft, but the other narrators in Terra Ignota, and there are other narrators in Book of the New Sun too, because there are texts within a text mm. uh, that are authored by other figures who are not Severian. Um, there can be, for one thing, extremely warm, caring, intentional narrators who are nonetheless unreliable because they're full of bias and <laughs> they have only one perspective. And there are people they love and will describe well. There are people they hate and will describe negatively. And they're, you know, 
human beings, we are unreliable. Boy, the historians have to know this when we're reading primary sources. You know? <laughs> You're reading Bruni's history of Florence, and he's like, Florence triumphed over Milan, the armies were here, and then they went away. And then you read Milan's history of the thing, and they're like, the Duke was about to conquer Florence, then he dropped dead of the flu, and <laughs> the army had to go home because the Duke was dead. You're like, hmm, these are slightly different accounts. Uh, you know, all, all, all historical narrators are unreliable in ways that are often, I, I don't want to say fully sincere, because they they know that they're crafting a narrative, but that are intended warmly and intended in a way in which they care about the reader, like the reader, want to communicate with the reader, don't want to be pulling a prank on the reader or being smug at the reader or tricking the reader. They want to get the reader to understand something, and they're trying to get that across. But nonetheless, it can be full of bias, it can be full of confusion, it can be full of inaccuracy. Uh, and as in the case of Siberian, it can be full of madness. Uh, and there's that amazing moment quite early in Shadow of the Torture in which he says that he believes himself to be insane. And I remember on rereading it to write the introduction, thinking, oh my God, I didn't realize that Severian and Mycroft tell the reader that at just about the same time, <laughs> uh, at just about the same pacing of how far you are into book one, both Severian and Mycroft tell the reader that they believe themselves to be insane. And I, I just did not realize that that too, I had duplicated. Uh, I had absorbed it, but had, had not remembered that it was there. Uh, and so these are both narrators in which we play with the amazing, luscious richness of how unreliable someone can be and how many different reasons, how many different reasons they can be unreliable. They can be unreliable because they were lied to. They can be unreliable because they are biased. They can be unreliable because they're in love. Uh, they can be unreliable because they are trying to protect someone or some faction or something. They can be unreliable because, and this is very, one of the more visible ones with Severian eventually, because they're trying to justify themselves. Uh, because they're uncomfortable with some of the things that they've done and so are presenting them in a positive light in a kind of a self-fashioning way. They can be unreliable because they don't bother to tell us things or because they skip things that they're ashamed of. Uh, Wolf is very good at that, um, at, at showing the way real narrators do that. I remember on the, on the most recent past, there's that moment when he leaves the city of Thrax and he doesn't tell us why for a while. He's just suddenly leaving. And it takes a while to get him around to finally telling us what happened because he was unhappy with and somewhat ashamed of what happened. And it was exactly like moments in the autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, a fascinating uh, beginning of the 1500s goldsmith, sculptor, assassin, military captain, necromancer, who's real. Um, uh, in whose ridiculously interesting autobiography, there will be moments where, you know, he left Florence and when he left, it was a Republic and he's come home to Florence and he's working for the Duke. And you're like, yeah, you left out the, the siege and the, and the coup, which you were party to. You just skipped <laughs> right over that one, did you? Uh, and, and, and real historical narrators do that because they don't want to depict the parts of, themselves that they're uncomfortable with. And all of that can happen with warmth. All of that can happen with from the perception of the person, only the best intentions toward the reader. Mm. Uh, and, and so 
you know, Severian layers all these different unreliabilities. He layers the unreliability of him not explaining the stuff we need to know because we're from a different time, the reliability of protecting himself, the reliability of bias, the reliability of unreliability of being in love, the unreliability of having enemies, um, the unreliability of not understanding, the unreliability of being lied to, the unreliability of being insane, and then the science fictional unreliability of being multiple consciousnesses within one body, uh, mm. which can slip between one and another in ways that, again, are uh, an increased level of unreliability. And we learn as we read him, we learn these attributes one by one, and we learn to analyze more carefully everything he says which means that very rapidly every sentence Severian says is communicating many levels more information than just the content of the sentence. Yeah. yeah. Because it's also communicating, you know, if he's ashamed of this moment, that tells us something about the kind of thing that must have just happened. If he's suddenly sounding Thecla-like, what triggered that? What does that tell us about the other people who are nearby? And, and you know, we learn the triggers that make that shift happen, which then means when we see that shift, we can deduce things that have been skipped over. We level up in understanding Severian. Uh, and that is something you do do on the first pass. You level up at understanding Severian. And then on the second pass, you read the beginning with 50 points in understanding Severian already. <laughs> and so much more than becomes comprehensible in sentences that the first time you read them were conveying only three pieces of information, but now are conveying 13 pieces of information because of all the other things that you hadn't quite uh, leveled up at yet. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to make the experience of encountering Mycroft Canner similar uh, and and for that reason, I was uh, I was delighted, though not surprised, that of my first five beta readers, the first five people who read the last book of Terra Ignota, uh, three of them, no, four of them, immediately read it again. <laughs> That's great. Uh, which I think awesome. is the highest praise that a beta reader can give to a book. <laughs> Uh, uh, but is also speaking to the fact that you realize, you realize when you get to the end of Book of the New Sun, oh, wow, if I read this again, I would understand so much more. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You realize that you've leveled up both at Severian and at Severian's world yeah, uh, so that you can reread it. Uh, and you can also reread at different stages, right? Because you can read Shadow and then read Shadow a second time. You can read Shadow and Claw and then read both of those a second time. You can read all four and read them again, and then read Earth of the New Sun, and then read the first four. Uh, there are many cycles of reread, and there are things that you can only get on reread after four books, and other things you can get on reread after three books, uh, or on reread after two books. And that's true of both series as well, and in the intended, uh, in the intended craftsmanship thereof. That's awesome. It, it reminds me of there's an interview somewhere where the interviewer asked Wolf, like, why do you use unreliable narrators so much? And his answer was basically, I think I'm just being a realist writer because that's how we view the world. And your mm -hmm. point about mm -hmm. history as well yeah. was he's like, I, it's an omniscient narrator is not really realistic. We never experience that. Um, and the way you describe, you know, even like you said, even historical documents, that's just yeah. what 
people do. Well, I would say especially <laughs> historical moments. Yes. It's just yeah. the, the farther we are from a thing, the more visible it becomes. Yeah. yeah. And as someone, I think, who thought a lot about history, uh, Wolf was someone who understood that about documents. Uh, and yeah, there is that there is an artificiality to the narrator who's correct about everything, uh, that it's rare and odd. And this is going to sound like a really strange comparison, but every year in my uh, Italian Renaissance undergrad course, we do a two-week uh, simulation of the papal election of 1492. And all the students are the different cardinals competing to be pope, and some of them are the crowned heads of Europe, you know, Queen Isabella and and uh, Anne of Brittany and uh, and uh, Maximilian Habsburg and uh, Henry the Seventh of England, you know, manipulating the election from the outside, and some of them are like the the clerks and the master of the kitchens and the people who run the election, and so on. Um, and each of the characters in that has a unique power. This is not a simple reenactment with a predetermined ending. This is they go in, they negotiate, they make factions, they make a pope, they have a war, they invade each other, they murder each other. It's all on them uh, to decide what they do. But they each have different unique abilities, whether it's I'm rich, I therefore can do things that only rich people can do. Uh, I'm from a noble family, therefore I can do things that in this period only a noble family can do. Uh, I have ties to this resource or, or, or et cetera. And there's one character whose special power is this person is correct. <laughs> All of the information in their character sheet is actually true uh, instead of <laughs> instead of filtered by bias and ignorance. And, you know, this person is from France and therefore doesn't know very much about the intricacies of Italy or this person is so mired in the intricacies of Italy that they don't know very much about France. And so this one character is a very veteran diplomat who really knows this stuff, whose strangely subtle power is, you know, the one person whose assessment of the personality and likely actions of everyone is about right. That's so awesome. Um, and, and I think that reflects how rare I think the kind of narrator we think of as a reliable narrator is. Yeah. Now think about how often we're wrong about even what our closest friends are actually thinking or wanting. Um, and, and go from that to ha thinking of a reliable narrator as normal. Uh, so on that front, I totally agree with Wolf that it's, uh, writing unreliable narrators is writing normalcy. On the other hand, he definitely writes his unreliable narrators with with depth and layers and joy. Uh, and I was on a panel at a con a little while ago, PenguinCon, I think it was, which was supposed to be about writing, was it first person? I think it was writing in first person. And the panel turned entirely into Gene Wolfe. Here's an example for Gene Here's another example for Gene Wolfe. Here's an example from a different Gene Wolfe. There are just so many things that he does with narration that, you know, a signature of Gene Wolfe is he will do five awesome things with the narration, no matter <laughs> what else is happening. Um, and uh, as I have found myself planning things, I certainly I'm, I'm working on the beginning of my second series now, and I'm certainly doing complex things with narrator and narration uh, again. Uh, there's it's just something I think some of us love. You know, some of us love crafting poetry in meters. Some of us hate that. Some of us love writing beautiful descriptions of, of settings and landscapes. Some writers skip right past that and do mostly dialogue. Some of us just love the layers of a complex narrator. Mm -hmm. And I think that Gene Wolfe is very high on that and, and gifted that to me. 
that reading Severian as I did uh, as a young reader of science fiction uh, ignited that love in me as well, which was then enhanced by my enthusiasm for history and therefore discovering that uh, real historical documents read a lot more like Gene Wolfe than they do like just about any other (laughs) fiction author. That's awesome. And the variety with which he does it too. Like we have Severian here, but then you have like the Latro books where you have a narrator who's literally trying to recreate his own history at every chapter because he- And who's the opposite? We have the perfect memory versus the no memory. Right. Uh, And the reliabilities and unreliabilities of both uh, of those, which are just amazing to put side by side. And then both of them do the things where they tell us the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Latro is the easier example, right? That he'll, he'll see- a woman in the sky holding a silver bow and arrow and won't realize that that's not what everyone else sees and, and won't think to tell us what that is in terms we understand. Um, That's a a gorgeous and simple uh, and easily articulable example of uh, a narrator not telling us what we would normally expect to be told, uh, which I often use when trying to explain that concept to people. But also Latro, when, He's reading his own diary. He's reading it as a historical document. He's, mm-hmm. He has that, that removal in the same way that someone who is coming upon it 100 years later has that removal, right? Yeah. And, and where he's sometimes frustrated of, why didn't I write down this? I need to know <laughs> mm-hmm. this. It's not there. Why did I go on and on about this other thing? Why didn't I say what happened at the end of the thing? That's happened so often. So often. I work with a lot of historians who work on the Inquisition. And it's so common for us to have like the notes along the way, but not know what happened to the person in the end. Uh, so that we know what the charges were, we know what the sort of legal fuss about it was, but we might not have the document that says whether there was a conviction or we might, but we don't know what the sentencing details. Just so often you get a glimpse of the middle uh, of, of something and you get no resolution because that wasn't in the document or you don't get the source because that wasn't in the document. Uh, Andy, you mentioned something in your introduction that's just really so befuddling to me and it's not because I doubt it's true or even because I believe it's true, but maybe because of what it suggests to, about Gene Wolfe as a writer. You say, you mentioned that there are no Gene Wolfe imitators. There's no... Well, that there are very few people who have tried to work in that space. Right, yeah. Um, compared to uh, compared to how, how much it's praised, how much it's discussed, and how much it's read. And I think that a lot of that is that it's in a very intimidating space. It's doing a lot of very intimidating things and things that are difficult. Uh, and so we can talk about it in a sense, having three major super innovative things that Book of the New Sun is doing. I, I'm going to change that from three to four. Uh, one of them is doing that complicated of an unreliable narrator. And it's true, you see cool, unreliable narrator things around, but you you rarely see anything as ambitious as Severian. Um, so that's one. And and that's an arena where, you know, seeing somebody do the, I have made a 100% dark chocolate, chocolate bar. Uh, <laughs> other people saying, wow, that was incredible. I'm going to make an 80% dark chocolate chocolate bar because yeah, that was amazing. It showed me how amazing it could be, but I'm going to try for something that is a little bit less intense, which is great. And so there are lots of awesome, unreliable narrators that are influenced by Severian, but there are very few that are trying something as complex as Severian. Mm -hmm. So that's part one. Two, 
he opens this space of deep future in which there hadn't been very much. I do discuss other titles. Also, all of those references are credit to Joe Walton, uh, who has read a bajillion things and is really good <laughs> on telling you when things are and aren't there. Um, uh, that, you know, he opens up the space of deep future, meaning writing way far in the future uh, and of doing this deep, deep layering. Now, those are not quite the same thing, right? You can do a deep, deep layering that is 1000 mm -hmm. years in the future or is in a second world fantasy where you've made that degree of layering, but not on Earth. Uh, or you can write in a deep, deep future, but not have all of that layering. And we've seen some other deep future, but not a lot. Uh, and we've seen, I think, an increase in people trying cool layering things, but few attempting the depth that Book of the New Sun has. So that, you know, if effectively he has given us a box of five different 100% dark chocolate bars from different, you know, different sources, we have seen the 80% chocolate versions of all of them many times, but very few attempts to get toward 100. Uh, I don't know if I've dug deep too deep into the dark chocolate. No, no, no. It makes sense. It definitely makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but, I, but I hope it's working. Everybody um, loves chocolate. And, you know, and, and it's, it's important to remind ourselves that there are patterns to the future. There is a history of what we think the future is going to be like, and that there's a history to which bits of the future science fiction writers tend to write about. Um, and the future that he writes about, which is super, 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 super in the future was not one that was written about much before him and is one that hasn't been written about that much since either. Compared to think of how much fiction takes place in the uh, there is a space empire uh, and we are in our galaxy in a multi-solar system space mm -hmm. empire phase where there can be space opera. There's lots of fiction in that degree of future. There's also lots of fiction in the 20 years out, you know, urbanization and globalization have increased and we're watching some change that's happening in our present get worse. There's also quite a bit in the Humanity has been wiped out and we're at the next species or there's been a new dark age and we're at the next post dark age era. There's also a lot in the sort of early space first right. contact mm -hmm. zone. Uh, but there are also patches of, of imagined future that haven't had a lot in them. Uh, and deep, 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 deep future is one. Another is what I sometimes call middle future, which is where Terra Ignota is. Uh, which is not just a fairly rare space, but also a, a fairly new space. Because in SF written up through maybe 1980, uh, by you know 2000, we were all going to have flying cars and robot butlers and our kids are going to be taking field trips to the moon, uh, if not living on them. Think of how, you know, within our, the lifetimes of people who are already alive, uh, original Trek takes place. Uh, yeah. The expectation was that space was going to be really fast. And so for a long time, there was nothing being written that was a hundred years or more out in which we weren't far out into the galaxy and far out into space and living all over Mars, unless it was because there was a nuclear war or another disaster that, that made us go off track. So there was the sort of disaster future path and there was the, deep in the galaxy future path. 
Um, and as we started learning that post the space race, space exploration got harder and slowed down, we had underestimated things like how hard it would be to live in microgravity because our bones degenerate and we don't have protection <laughs> from radiation and, and all these other things that make space actually really hard. Um, we didn't imagine a 25th century in which we're only on the moon and Mars and not much further, <laughs> uh, which is the space where Terra Ignota takes place, right? There's space stuff. Space stuff is a huge part of this, but there isn't very much space stuff because space has been slow and hard. Uh, and that is a space uh, 25th century, but, but humans are still mostly on mm -hmm. earth that didn't exist in the imaginations of the sixties and seventies and earlier eighties. That just wasn't an option. Uh, and, you know, I was interested in writing in a science fictional space in which there wasn't a lot of exploration because it was a neat area to explore. And I think Gene Wolfe also shows that of, Hey, let's explore uh, millions of years in the future. What's that like uh, writing in a bit of the future we don't explore often? The closest parallel I know in many interesting ways is in Osamu Tezuka's Phoenix, which is a, uh, it's a manga, but it's a, it's a science fictional epic which looks at far, 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 far future and looks at uh, the future of humanity through the lens of being like a life cycle of an organism and that, that as there is growth and then decline, that that happens to species as well. And so it, it, it takes you from primitive human civilization to grand space empire human civilization to the sun is dying level human civilization. Oh, wow. um, but it does it out of order, uh, which is to say volume one is archaic past. Volume two is humanity's extinction moment. Volume three is less archaic past. Volume four is far, far future, but not that far. And it alternates getting closer and closer to the present uh, with every volume, past, future, past, future, past, future, um, getting closer to the present. There are a lot of very interesting parallels between Phoenix, which I'm actually teaching a course on this fall at UChicago, and Book of the New Sun. Oh, One wow. of them being their deep engagement with providence, religiosity, and that the big question is, why is there pain and suffering? Uh, how can we respect and, and, uh, and uh, understand the ethics of a consciousness that is the shaper of a world that contains the amount of suffering that the world contains, which is a fundamental guiding question of both of those works in a really powerful and neatly parallel way. Wow. Um, well, I was just going to move on and, and sort of ask what it was that you really took from Wolf in the sense that you, you've talked a lot about how Terra Ignota is influenced by New Sun in particular. And I just mm -hmm. wanted to pick your brain for what parts do you, yeah. do you feel? And now that I've freshly reread them, I can give a, a more complex answer as well, because there's, there's the category of things that I consciously knew I was absorbing from Book of the New Sun. And then there are so many things that on the reread, I was like, my God, I didn't realize that that, <laughs> that, that, that too. Um, so the, one was uh, complexity of world and world build and uh, wanting to have all of these layers and accumulations, that mode of world building. Now, Terra Ignota is 25th century, not uh, deep future as, as Wolf is. So it's a, a much nearer thing. 
but the idea that you wanted to world build really deeply and have there be lots of groups and lots of uh, terms, and lots of people and lots of political phases that have already been passed through. Uh, things like uh, um, how you know we hear about the earlier Greenpeace-Mitsubishi merger and before that the OBP-Olympian uh, merger that became the humanists, uh, that there are intervening layers of history between our present and this that have already happened and that aren't there to be a giant plot point. They're there because it's natural for history to have layers that it's been through in the middle of things and then discarded. Right. Uh, and I should say, just for those who haven't read it or, or don't quite know the premise quite yet, which we can get to, but reading the first hundred pages or so of the first book is overwhelming. I mean, <laughs> but, but in a fun way, like it's, it's usual for, of course, you pick up a sci-fi book, you're looking for the rules of the world, you're looking for what's happening. And as you read those first hundred pages, everything keeps changing in, in the way that you're trying to put it together. Just, Partly because, like you say, you're describing a living history that's still going on. And it's a different reading experience, I feel like. I mean, if you look on like Goodreads and whatnot, you'll see lots of people who who talk about, I tried and it was so hard, but then I came back later and did it. And yeah. I feel like that's part of why it's so effective is, I mean, everything is layered. I mean, the way that you tell the story, I should say, for, mm -hmm. for those who don't know, the general point of it is, or at least the setup for it is it's a novel written by a criminal who, it's a history, a history. who is writing a history, but also that's done in the form of an 18th, like intentionally done in the form of an 18th century philosophical novel. So from the get go, <laughs> you are, yeah, you, you get are these layers going and on. back and forth, different times of history working yeah. together. Yeah. Well, and from the beginning, like Severian and I, I modeled both my narrator and separately my narrative style, which are not quite the same thing as each other, very heavily on Book of the New Sun as well. Like Severian, Mycroft is explaining stuff, but he's explaining the wrong stuff. He's explaining <laughs> the stuff he thinks his reader wants to know, and he isn't explaining the stuff he doesn't think his reader wants to know. Yep. And so we sit here for ages thinking, boy, Severian, you've explained at great length how this lunch ceremony is set up and <laughs> and i sure wish you would tell me what system of government this is yeah. uh, <laughs> you know that he he isn't explaining the things he thinks are going to be ubiquitous and he is explaining the things that he thinks we care about uh, which is exactly like the experience i as a historian have when i read a period document mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. because when i read a period document i mean you uh, many people's experience of this most vividly, though they don't necessarily notice it, is Machiavelli's Prince. Because if you read Machiavelli's Prince, which many, many people are required to do in school, he explains his medieval examples because he expects them to be obscure. And he explains some of his classical examples, but he never explains his contemporary examples at all. <laughs> Uh, and so he'll have a chapter. The chapter is on princes who don't have to work to maintain power. Some princes don't have to work to maintain power, like the Duke of Ferrara, period. End of chapter. <laughs> and you're like, thanks, Valuable. That was super helpful. Uh, but but when you know the period, everyone everyone who Machiavelli knew who picked that up would know, oh, yeah, Duke of Ferrara, the complicated house to essay relationship with Venice, Hungary, blah, 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 blah. Makes perfect sense. But to us, it doesn't. 
Uh, and so we we have to work sort of against the grain when reading a historical document to coax from it the information we're looking for. And you're like, okay, I'm trying to figure out the currency in this place. Come on, people, mention how much money you're paying for the thing. Okay, okay, thank you. You mentioned it once. Now I have to <laughs> now mention it again so I can compare it to the other thing. And that is a fascinating and powerful experience of engaging with a primary source and that Wolf really richly gives us so that we're putting on not only our reader of world building hat, but also our historian hat when we're trying to find the fragmentary puzzle pieces with which to piece together the things that our narrator isn't explaining to us. Uh, And when he is explaining things that we don't care about, we sit there and say, all right, This is a data point. The fact that he thinks I want to know this is a data point. Mm -hmm. What does that tell me about him and about his world that he thinks I need to know this and that he doesn't think I need to know that? Um, And so Wolf does world building via the things Severian doesn't explain to us, which tells us that they are ubiquitous knowledge. And he does world building by the things Severian does tell us about by showing us that these are things, Severian things we need to know. And I do the same in Terra Ignota with Mycroft. The things Mycroft explains to us are the things that tell us a lot about his expected reader and therefore about his future, its priorities and its questions. So one question that I've wanted to ask you and we pretty much ask everyone we talk to is I'm asking you to do a little bit of the opposite of a historian's hat here, but to put on a speculative hat and what you might think that Wolf's legacy will be. I mean, Le Guin, of course, calls him R. Melville on, on all the covers, but that's one question that I think a lot of fans wonder about is first of all, like, why isn't he more famous? And then they wonder if he's going to last any longer. And of course you're doing your part by having, <laughs> you know, so much talking about him, but also using him. And so I was just curious what... Well, and, and Tor is doing their part with, you know, Tor Essentials as a series is in many ways about, this is not just big seller books. This is books that people who really know the science fiction world think are important to the science fiction world. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, that sometimes there can be a figure who's the source of something and that figure doesn't necessarily get directly read a ton, but it still disseminates. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for example, and I think Wolf gets read more than this, but um, Beccaria, uh, 18th century uh, enlightenment figure from Northern Italy, who wrote a treatise on crimes and punishments, which articulates deterrence-based justice and the fundamentals of what is our modern judicial system. Mm -hmm. And his pamphlet was read a bit, and then it was read by Voltaire. (laughs) And then Voltaire popularized it everywhere and campaigned around it. And then its ideas of deterrence-based justice entered the political writings of founding fathers of the U.S. And when we think about innocent until proven guilty and uh, cruel and unusual punishment, most people don't know the name Beccaria. Hmm. Uh, Beccaria is still in print. People who study this read it uh, and find him amazing. And many people also don't necessarily remember to connect Voltaire with that, even though Voltaire was the popularizer. But the ground had been broken, the concepts were there, and Beccaria's new ideas about justice have disseminated and are all around. And so in that sense, there is a difference between 
which works of Wolf are still being read, which works of Wolf are still in print in a hundred years, versus what ground that Wolf broke uh, is still shaping things. Mm-hmm. And while it's true that people don't often try to make the 100% dark, dark chocolate bars, the fact that they're there means more people are trying the 80% and more <laughs> people are doing one of the things he did and not others. And it's opened up all of these spaces so that people do world build more ambitiously because of Gene Wolfe, even if they haven't read him because they've read somebody else who's read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People do think harder about making an interesting and complex, unreliable narrator, even if they've never read Gene Wolfe because they read somebody else who did. Um, and so I think that for people who care deeply about science fiction, the books will always wow and will always be an amazing experience and an amazing second read experience and will therefore always be staples we return to as not only important elements of the genre, but things that will always still be delightful. Mm-hmm. Uh, because even as some elements of the text age, you know, and on this pass, I sure was conscious of the sexualization of all the female characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then, boy, that was the case, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, would, I would probably enjoy this book if it had less of that. But that was such a small slice of what was going on. And the rest of what was going on is so rich and so powerful and so unique and such an incredible experience and re-experience as the, the, the narration and the metaphysics gradually merge and as the shape of the world turns out to hinge on both of them, that's not going to be less powerful in a hundred years. Mm-hmm. You know, and there are some books that are immensely powerful, but that don't have that power out of their original context, some of which are great. Uh, I think if, if Cory Doctorow were here to be asked, he would love for some of his fiction to become hard to relate to in 100 years, because it would mean that the terrible things he's depicting about our society <laughs> aren't true anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when, you're, when you're writing the kind of fiction that is a warning about our contemporary world and where it may lead, you would love for that to, to make no sense to people in the future. Uh, in a way that is very different from these books where the awe of going into a world that deep and thinking about a future that far and what can have meaning that lasts that long isn't going to change. And, you know, I think that Gene Wolfe now is just about as dated as Gene Wolfe will ever get Uh, because everything else that's still rich is stuff that's still rich on the scale of asking questions about what it means to be human and what time is and how we relate to yeah. it and, and fundamentals of ethics um, and other bits are such a small portion of it that it that it very much stands and then at the same time that duration of people still reading it is separate from its influence which is often secondary and tertiary through someone who read it and was awed by it and then tried a 60% version of this level of complexity in one direction or another, or who wrote in a different part of the future than they would have thought to write in, even if it's not deep future. Uh, because he opened that ground of, hey, let's let's reach to other weirder, uh, farther parts of the future and see what's happened in them and ask how the development in between went on. Uh, so that he has a development, I think, and a legacy very much like Beccaria of still known and read by the people for whom this is a specialty uh, and still delightful to those people, 
while also fragments of the most valuable elements of his creation have gone far beyond the world of people who know his name. Mm. And that that's not a bad thing. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. The the one big thing I still wanted to do, and we've done it indirectly, but to give you a chance to just let people who may not have started Terra Ignatieta, or may not even have heard it, since we have so many Wolf fans, I <laughs> think they should get a sense now why they would be attracted to it already. Mm. But is there a good summary pitch that you can give for it? <laughs> I mean, I, I I can, but the the summary pitch I would give to a Wolf reader is radically different. And... Uh, again, as I talked about at the beginning, sometimes you want to say, oh, this book is awesome. It has a great vampire. And sometimes you want to say, this book is great. You're going to love it. I'm not going to tell you why, because I secretly know that you like vampires, but I want it to be a surprise, <laughs> right? Uh, the amount of information you give people about the story, the plot, etc. of a book varies with the way you're recommending it. Uh, and so there are people who I don't know at all to whom I'll describe setting. But if I'm if I'm recommending Terry Gnota to Wolf Readers, it's like, did you like the process of getting to know Severian, discovering layer after layer after layer of more ways in which Severian was unreliable, uh, encountering just how dark and strange and r uh, radical his involvement with violence and 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 cruelty and bad things is, and then wrestling with that and watching him wrestle with that ethically afterward. If you enjoyed that, you will really enjoy Mycroft canon. <laughs> Did you enjoy piecing together Gene Wolfe's world from all of the fragments? Did you enjoy seeing a description of a painting and realizing what it was and seeing these strange old archaic things like the cult of St. Catherine pop up and suddenly be present uh, in a world that is far beyond that. Did you enjoy the historian's puzzle piece collecting game of putting that together? If so, you will enjoy the world building of Terra Ignota. Uh, <laughs> did you enjoy the mix of science fiction with religiosity uh, and ethics and that that triad being very closely linked to each other and questions of can we have a universe in which there is deep engagement with providence and in fact the narrator at least believes that there is providence and we're coming to understand providence through the narrator and uh, this is a providence that is involved with religiosity and even perhaps with divine intervention and yet is still radically a science fictional world in which physics is physics and aliens are aliens and this is all happening within a space of uh, the fact that there is religiosity doesn't mean there isn't science. If you enjoyed that and exploring that, you would enjoy Terra Ignota. There is very little uh, science fiction in that world, in the world where there is consistent internal strict science, and yet there is also both religiosity and potentially divine action. Uh, the new Battlestar Galactica is in that space. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Book of the New Sun is in that space. Um, uh, Evangelion, the renowned anime mm -hmm. Neon Genesis Evangelion is in that space. Terra Ignota is in that space. It's funny you mentioned that. My son and I started just rewatching that yesterday. And, and boy, is it rich on the rewatch, huh? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, and indeed, if you like the kind of book that you read and then you read again and on the second time, you're like, ooh, uh, that is also one of the characteristics of Terry Ignota. Yeah. 
And I was going to say, on that point about religiosity, we've talked this whole time about history, but we never mentioned that in the very first chapter, a little boy named Bridger can make his toys come to life. Yes, in terror. <laughs> so, well, and similarly, as, as, as Wolf makes it kind of hard to perceive, in the very first chapter of Book of the New Sun, there is a death and a resurrection mm -hmm. and an encounter with an alien, which is also related to divine action. Yeah. Uh, although he makes all of that very difficult to perceive as real and sets it in something like a dream. Uh, and so in both of them, we have the challenge of we are asking science fiction questions of this world, which has divinity in it. Uh, we are not asking fantasy questions of it. We are asking scientific questions of it, uh, which is not a space in which there is a lot. Uh, many readers of science fiction get sort of turned off by things that mix in religiosity. They're worried that it's going to turn into proselytizing mm -hmm. uh, or that it means that the science is going to melt into woo-woo, which sometimes it does. There's plenty of, of badly executed examples of, of this. Uh, and there's also plenty of, you know, you're enjoying a perfectly good genre book and suddenly it's Jesus. And you're like, no, I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't like that. I liked it when it was the thing it was and when it wasn't, Jesus, please go away. Uh, and so I understand why people are nervous about that sphere uh, and why it's rarely done. And when it is done, it's always tricky. Uh, and there you can, you know, if you look around online for responses, you can sure find people who were really turned off in Battlestar Galactica when the religious content that had been there since episode one turned out to be really there. <laughs> um, you know, because Battlestar Galactica tells you that Providence exists in the opening credits of episode one, yep. Uh, yep. which has dot, 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 and they have a plan capitalized. And like eight people took that seriously. <laughs> and thousands of people didn't. And so for eight people, this series made perfect sense all the way through. Uh, um, and, uh, and I remember being one of those eight people and hoping, hoping, wait, is this, is this going to be like Book of the New Sun? Is this going to be uh, deeply engaged with Providence. And then when, when it turned out the answer was yes, I was yes. And when it turned out the answer yes, other people were like, what? Yeah. I, I do not want this in my science fiction. I just want science in my science fiction. Um, so it is in that sphere. And I think that that is, while a tiny and tricky sphere at a sphere that many people are uh, burned by the failed versions of and therefore reluctant to trust. A lot of people are reluctant to trust uh, uh, that type of SF that mixes science fiction with providence uh, or religiosity, uh, that when it's done well, it's really, really good. And when it's done well, it's directly in the tradition of the Enlightenment, which is why the book is in an Enlightenment style in the first place. Uh, and, you know, when you want to ask, what is the Book of the New Sun similar to? You know what the real answer is? The real answer is Candide. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, it's it's much more similar to Candide than it is to any work of 20th century genre fiction, period. Uh, because it's about this complicated sequence of experiences that the narrator, that the, that the central character, it's not narrator in Candide, has, through which the nature of providence is gradually and intentionally on the part of providence revealed to this character so that at the end we have an understanding of to what degree humans are capable of knowing the purposes of, uh, of suffering. Uh, and that is something that is explored a ton in Enlightenment literature and very little in 20th century literature in which providence is not something we think and talk about all that much. Uh, it's certainly something that shapes 
thought a lot uh, and, you know, uh, moving to politics for, I swear, just a microsecond. Uh, <laughs> one of the roots of the type of political thought which says free market capitalism is the best solution, free market capitalism will always result in, you know, industry being rewarded and the virtuous rising and uh, the lazy falling and people in poverty will be there because they deserve it and the, the wealthy will have the wealth because they deserve it, derives from 17th and 18th and especially 19th century, uh, mostly British and German thought about uh, Protestantism and a particular Protestant idea about providence working through the market. And that concept is providentialist thinking, which has been de-secularized, but nonetheless remains within American thought as a very powerful factor even though many people who are influenced by that factor no longer connect it to religion. Um, but there isn't very much active discussion of, of providence and why, are, why is there suffering? Why is there evil? It's not a big theme in our literature, but it is an amazing and important question and a central theme in the literature of the 18th century. Uh, and you get it in Jacques de Fetaliste, and you get it in Candide, and you get it in plays, and you get it in novels, and you get it in Rousseau, and you get it in all sorts of places. And you get it in Book of the New Sun, and you get it in Terra Ignota, and you get it in Tezicus Phoenix. Why is there evil? The question of theodicy, which is a really frustrating word because people always think you're saying the odyssey, but <laughs> theodicy. The question of theodicy, why is there evil? which is a really powerful and interesting question um, and which uh, it's a delight to me to see explored. This is a big part of why I became a historian. Uh, I love this. I loved it in Gene Wolfe. I loved it in other places. Where can I find more of it? Oh, it turns out most of it stopped several hundred years ago. Well, I guess I'm going to be a historian. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love to see uh, an essay. I don't know that I may be the only person who can and should write it, so maybe someday I'll have to, but I would love to see a deep uh, analysis of Book of the New Sun, Terra Ignota, uh, Evangelion, Battlestar Galactica remake, and Candide. So Ada, this has been incredible, and I have learned a lot, not just from things to go that I'm going to go hunt down. First of all, like Phoenix, like you said, um, but... Oh, uh, uh, just so unfortunately, Phoenix could not be more out of print. Oh, no. English. You jump on volumes of it on eBay if you see volume four for less than $400. Ah, gotcha. Ouch. Gotcha. Except so. that you can get it as an ebook. You can get it on Kindle. Okay. Um, it's just impossible just about to get in paper copy. Uh, that said, if you live not too far away, I can, you can come by and borrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but it's, but you can get it on, on Kindle. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's, un it's a tragedy much lamented by the manga world because it is you, you know universally recognized in Japan as the philosophical masterpiece of manga and sort of the highest level of, of ambition manga has done. Uh, and it was you know, put out, uh, the campaign to put it out in English began with the very first English language ever publication about manga, Fred Schott's Manga Manga, which contained in it an excerpt of Phoenix that Fred begged Tezuka to let him translate and include to try to get people to see this. This is the series that proves how important manga is. Please put it out. Uh, and then nonetheless, it wasn't put out until the early aughts. And then it went out of print like lightning. 
Um, so uh, there is a, 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 and a campaign to desperately try to get this back in print, uh, but it's hard. Whereas in, in Japan, there is, I think the best way to put it is that there's a, there's a manga about working as a bookseller. And one of the things it makes fun of is how frequently there's a new deluxe critical edition of this manga. <laughs> that, that sometimes there will be more than one new deluxe re-release of it in the same year. <laughs> uh, and, and yet it's not available in English. Wow. Uh, anyway. Thank you so much for your time. And, and I do hope that everybody out there who is listening would at least pick up the first volume to like the lightning. Um, but also just wonderful to have such a, a cool sort of sense of wolf in literary history. Uh, Cause I don't think that's something that we get quite as much in a lot of discussions. So uh, that's been, it's been really helpful for me. Actually. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. an absolute pleasure. I would love to chat about it more at some other point. <laughs> Oh, we'll, we'll take we can make that, that happen. Oh yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> and also the, the extra pleasure of, you know, knowing that I'm speaking to an audience who's read book of the new sun. So I can just say, read, read Terra Nota. It's like Severian. It's like the world. <laughs> and I don't have to spoil any of the actual content. I can give people the pure experience of reading it and getting the world build uh, puzzle pieces in order. Cause you don't have to explain the premise to, to people who, trust authors enough to have trusted Gene Wolfe enough to read Book of the New Sun. Yeah. Because um, I think that's the other thing that they share is you gotta trust me. <laughs> uh, in Terra Ignota, you gotta trust me. And most people who read it amounts off, that's the key. Uh, right. Is that there will be things in it that, that they see and they think, oh, this most authors who are doing this would be going somewhere bad. Uh, uh, somewhere I don't like, I should say. And mm. they, and they stop and it's and and it'll inevitably be that i'm actually doing the opposite of what they fear but it's a book that requires just a lot of trust gotcha gotcha <sighs> well thank you so much and i will have links to your site and to the books up on the show notes but otherwise ada palmer thank you so much for thank you time. thank you ada <laughs> well thank you for exploring g wolf deeply with people it's, <laughs> it's very important worthwhile it is fun thank you I don't know if you have something else you wanted to ask about the introduction, but the no, no, thing... I forced all my questions right at the front. <laughs> well, if, one... if anything bad would happen, I know that I would get my questions answered. Uh, <laughs> very strategic. 
Sudden typhoon. <laughs> so it should be fun. But the narration is crazy. And people are always, you know, friends are always asking me, what are you doing? Are you doing okay? And I'm like, I spent all day translating this one kenning. And they're like, other people just write books and don't don't make themselves spend the entire day on one sentence. And I'm like, yes, they, other people sure do do that. That sounds nice. <laughs> Heard it. Uh, Adam Ada or Ada? Ada. Ada, okay. yes. It's only odd when I'm in Europe because Italians will never, ever <laughs> stop pronouncing it the Italian way. But it's Ada when I'm in the U.S. because that's what my parents do. But, yeah, what is it in, uh, you mentioned Doctoro in uh, his uh, Down mm-hmm. Out in the Magic Kingdom and also in uh, Altered Carbon. The yeah. people, if they get a cold, ah, just take a lethal dose and reboot into a new body. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lazarus Long. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. that's a... Yeah, that's a much less destructive form of planned obsolescence, though, because bodies are biodegradable. You can yeah, that's true. That's, true. that's quite true. That's quite true. <laughs> yep. And and I have a I have a copy that has different covers, and I was trying to read, and I just couldn't do it. I had to go order the original paperbacks. <laughs> it was just, and I was like, I've never respected these covers, but somehow I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was interesting. His process of of how he decided to to choose things was um, mm-hmm. was both very thoughtful, but also really different from. And you'll notice that the tour essentials editions almost never keep the original cover art. In fact, I think the book of the new may be the only one where they have. Oh, interesting. Um, We use the original cover image. Mm -hmm. They did a new layout for the text, but there's something iconic about those covers in a way that in their new editions of among others or, uh, dragon waiting, etc. Mm-hmm. They have had different covers, so that's not. I'm gonna. Uh, I realize I don't have a glass of water. I'm gonna fill one, and then we can. Sure. Chat more. Absolutely. Make everybody sound cool. you know much smoother and good. So. Yeah, and so I see just... they're recording on separate tracks. So exactly. Yeah. Oh, background. that's why I love the site. Yeah, because yeah, yep. I'm terrible about over talking, and so we can fix that. So okay, if yeah. you, if I if I do over talk, then just blunt, just just push right on through. Right, because it's separable. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the, I'm doing a podcast with Joe Walton uh, that we are just starting up. The first episode should be released in late, hopefully before the end of July. Oh, awesome. Um, Fun. And we're using a very similar, we're using, was it, I think, clean feed, but it's basically exactly the same.